As promised, friends, here is the full interview with Todd Wilson. It started off with just a regular conversation, so it doesn't sound super official because I wasn't originally planning to release it as a straight interview, but it was so good that I had to put it out there for you. So we're going to play the full interview straight through. There's no introduction, just know it's Todd Wilson. He is going to be giving uh, a boat tour today. If you're listening to this this release this morning, there is going to be a boat tour today, and then you can catch them next year. But the, old, the full interview is right here. I'm Brian Crawford. This is an extra edition for the new Pittsburgh Exposition. Enjoy. It, it sure is. So, but crossed a few bridges, you know, a few bridges off the list this past weekend. So, uh, the guy who uh, Joseph Strauss, who did the, uh, well, who's who took the credit for the Golden Gate Bridge. It's hard to say he did it, but he took the credit for the Golden Gate Bridge. He was really a specialist in movable bridges, so I went up to Thunder Bay, Ontario, and took a look at a few of the move, his movable bridges up there. So. Oh, very cool. Are you trying to say he's the Bob Kane of uh, bridge designers? <laughs> Certainly I don't know if you're Bob. familiar. Okay, Bob, Bob Kane Bob is the, yeah, the Batman guy. He yeah. he took credit for Batman and cut Bill Finger <laughs> out. So. Yeah. He's the Vernon Covell of bridge designers. Mm-hmm. You look at the Allegheny County bridge plaques, you see Chief Engineer Vernon Covell, Chief Engineer Vernon Covell, but he really didn't design the bridges very much. Maybe he reviewed the plans, but he was more of a political appointee for the Pittsburgh bridges. So. Okay. That's so interesting he, to know. He got all the credit, all the credit, but didn't do the uh, all of the work. <laughs> right. He did. I mean, he was at least. Um, you know, Joseph Armstrong did say that. You know, with the whole, um, you know, with how big the program was in the 1920s, he said that there will be people around. They might, you know, they don't worry. They won't interfere with you, but you might see their names from time to time. So I don't think that Covell was that bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Just on the payroll and not doing anything but that being said he certainly didn't have a full from at least from what i understand he certainly didn't have a full role in a bridge to be credited as the, the uh chief engineer hmm, that's so, interesting on so that's why when you look at pittsburgh bridges you know you'll see his name but you actually won't learn very much about him at all because didn't do very much work huh that's interesting that's really interesting so what, what sparked your interest in bridges so I was, you know, I was always interested in bridges. I don't recall a time when I was not interested in bridges. And I think that really stems to when I was little, my older brother was interested in bridges. And my uh, parents were both in various art-related fields, where my father was a, a commercial photographer in Pittsburgh. So, you know, we think about now going around the city and taking these Instagram-worthy photos. But, you know, before doing that, before social media, and my dad certainly um, was somebody who took a lot of city photos, and my mother, being an art teacher, um, saw bridges as a subject matter to draw. So um, I think what the Veterans Bridge opened in maybe 1988, 89, and I remember, you know, the, the bridge was open, so uh, we took a drive across the bridge. And just being a little kid in the back seat, I don't remember. I was like, "Well, where's the bridge?" Because uh-huh. <laughs> you couldn't see anything. But I mean, the point point being is that going back that far, 
again, being such a young kid in the back of the car. I mean, I know I have bridge pictures of Pittsburgh bridges that are dated 1990. So I would have been six years old then. So oh, wow. That's maybe cool. Even five, maybe even five. So either five or six. So that being said, I don't really remember a time that I wasn't involved in Pittsburgh bridges. And I think a lot of that, again, was just that an older brother who's looking at them, therefore the younger brothers look, has to look at them too. And therefore that becomes a thing. So now did the love of bridges carry on with your older brother or did he move away from bridges and you stuck with it? So he still appreciates them. He still likes them, but he didn't continue um, being focused about them, meaning it's something that he enjoys, but he doesn't research them. He doesn't really photograph them. He's not going to go far out of his way to see them. Yeah, that's cool to learn that your dad was uh, a photographer and it kind of all clicks now because you do take some phenomenal pictures of Bridges. And I really appreciate seeing your Instagram page because I try to flood my Instagram with people who take cool, beautiful pictures because that's the point, you know, to, to see beautiful things when you're on Instagram. That's one thing I love Instagram versus other social media apps because you get to uh, I feel like as an adult you get to you get a more positive experience there than you do in some other platforms absolutely and I mean I think it depends too on like how much you know what your interests are because while you can certainly learn information from you know other social media accounts I mean with Instagram you can be very selective of what content creators are pushing out so if there's something you are specifically interested in you can find the, either the hashtags or the content creators that are putting, say, more objective information that's uh, that follows what you're interested in. They're not necessarily, you know, you can you know you can be choosy, and they're not necessarily talking about themselves, their day. You know, some people are very interested in other people, right? They're the mm -hmm. live people, but some people are very interested in content. And um, I love how Instagram you can really find those accounts that are just showing content. And you can contribute to that. So yeah, appreciate that. And I used to work in photography as since my father, you know, had a, his business. Um, that was my job growing up. So I never had a conventional, um, well, you know, get this job, get that job, because you know, when your father's self-employed, that's your job. So yeah, see the tripods around through the downtown winter, you know, the wind tunnels, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But um, in um, when I was in high school my father needed to go digital. And unlike my mom, who was always very, very computer savvy and still is, my father was not computer savvy at all. So therefore, it became my job and my brother's job to learn how to do all of like the digital photo editing and teach my father how to do it. Mm -hmm. So therefore, and I think that also still translates to what I do in photography is I'm not as concerned with taking the, the say, the most well-exposed photo, because since my background was taking photos that my father took and editing them for clients, that aspect of it is really what I'm worried about is worrying about framing and angles and then post-production. So that makes that, sense. What, so what program do you use? So, um, I mean, initially it was everything was with Photoshop, but now because um, since since I don't sell my work, 
I don't need to go to the I don't have the time to go to the level of making, say, Photoshop perfect photos for for a daily um, site, you know, for daily Instagram. So therefore, mm -hmm. I just have Lightroom. Oh, which okay. Is, so which is good enough, um, you know, in terms of the techniques that I, you know, like using, then, you know, just upload them to Instagram. And sometimes it looks great. And sometimes uh, when Instagram uploads the photos, various colors might change a little bit or become brighter or something. And you look at the photos and you're like, oh, does it really look like that? Yeah. <laughs> That can be frustrating. I, I understand. So did your interest in bridges, did that have an influence on your career choice in going into uh, becoming an engineer? So it did, but maybe not as maybe, maybe not the way that I was fully expected where I would, you know, it, being that, you know, I liked photographing bridges and drawing bridges and learning about bridges. Um, usually like class projects would be some sort of science fair project on a bridge or history project would be writing about a bridge or writing a book about bridges. So that's really more, I know now let's say that's more like say architectural historian type of work, cultural resources type work, but just growing up, everyone's like, oh, you like bridges. So you're going to be an engineer, right? You like bridges. So you're going to be an engineer, right? So therefore I was like, well, I guess I'm going to become an engineer. However, so that so anyway, so that's why I'm not a bridge engineer, because I, I don't know that I've ever really had an interest in building bridges. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because the new structures that are, say, as they call them in the industry, signature bridges. Um, I'll say, for example, the new Beachwood Boulevard bridge on over the Parkway East, that new green arch, like say it's a signature bridge. You know, those are so few and far between anymore that. You, I would really want something like that to capture the imagination. Like if you could have a full, there are very few people that get to design, say, structurally innovative bridges and that are really, really, truly impressive bridges on a full-time basis. I mean, certainly, you know, the bridges are more need-based and, um, you know, as using taxpayer money to fund bridges, building, say, an ex unlike, say, Pittsburgh of 100 years ago, building the extravagant structure that we don't necessarily need, you know, that might not be the best use of taxpayer money. So I very much appreciate, you know, the industry and very much appreciate building bridges that are newer, safer and redundant. But my interest wasn't in building those. However, growing up and going around and looking at bridges, meant that I was looking at a lot more than bridges, right? Because it's not like you go to a museum where you walk in the door and there are bridges. To go find bridges, you have to actually go find them, right? So when I was really, you know, when I, so when I was in maybe elementary school or middle school, I'm already using maps and figuring out, like, at least where bridges might be or how to follow, you know, roads to, in rivers, and therefore learning a lot about the build environment itself, like how our road network developed, you know, it's became fascinating to say, you know, you're going to look at, um, let's, let's just say, for example, if you go over to uh, Chester, West Virginia, US 30 has the longest simply supported truss bridge in North America over the Ohio River. But if you leave here to go on to US 30 to go to, you know, Chester, West Virginia, you start on a 1950s era um, parkway system in Pittsburgh, 
you know, pre, you know, pre the passage of the internet, you know, as, as in the, the Pennsylvania Division of Highways standards from the 1950s, highways and tunnels. And then eventually you get on more modern segments as you're getting, you know, a little closer to the airport. Then in the early 90s, you start going around the airport, you know, parkway, which was built to interstate highway system standards in the 90s. But then you get off onto, you know, the two-lane US 30. And you can see how, or um, indirectly, you get off into 30. If you get take the Clinton exit, you take over, it's not a direct interchange. But anyway, the point being is that you can see how all of these different roads were built in different times. Then you can find like, well, where did Route 30 used to go? Or maybe before they built the airport parkway, you would actually continuously take, you know, US 30 through um, Imperial. Now that you know, it's faster to, to cut that leg out, you could see where old alignments of roads might be. And so therefore that journey to get to Chester, West Virginia has now come with so many different pieces of different alignments it wasn't just as simple as get on Interstate 79, look at the Interstate 79 bridge and turn around and go home. But you're using, so, you know, first, that's why I use Chester as an example, is you're using, you're using so many different alignments and you can see the old alignments and you can kind of see the evolution. You can see where roads, you know, straightened and uh, were straightened and then learning more and more about that. And as you know, I continue to go around and find and develop, you know, see more bridges. The, I start to see the, these some of the bridges that are left behind on the old alignments. And US 40, the National Road, is a great example where there are some of the old S bridges, ones in Washington County, more of them in, our, our, in Ohio bridges that were built 1815 to 1818. In uh, outside of Wheeling, West Virginia, there are some old brick parts of the old alignment that you could see. So you could see the evolution in alignments, road materials as well as navigating through wayfinding signage, driving through work zones, um, going through traffic signals. And so while uh, you know, I certainly excited, or was excited about bridges, I became excited about this whole entire transportation system. So then given the opportunity in college and learning about the different types of civil engineering, I thought I'd be a lot more interested in working on the traffic end of it, basically not necessarily laying out a road, not necessarily designing a bridge, but how all of those pieces fit together. So that's essentially kind of that ex extension of me growing up, going to look at bridges is everything that I had to learn to do that, that became pretty natural to do it, is now kind of what I do professionally. What's kind of wild is I'm thinking if you were born just a little bit later, you might not be in your career field because we'd have Google Maps. You wouldn't have to do all of that work. You just type it in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And likewise, I mean, with the natural progression of um, you know, engineering technology, you know, when you have an older population of bridges, you start upgrading them one by one by one by one. And, you know, certainly the goal is to have the safest, you know, structures that you can have in any any place. But so the so so many bridges that were in the 1990s that were kind of like the old cool bridges are no longer there, or we're looking at kind of the last of them that are still standing that are generally scheduled for replacement, ones that are outside of the major cities, um, because bridges like say like in this in the city if if this replacement of the Smithfield Street Bridge for example was announced, the public would have something to say about that. But unless you're in an area where there's that kind of heritage, you know, that heritage and tourism value, 
um, it becomes a lot tougher sell to use taxpayer funding to keep an older bridge open for vehicles when all of the objectives of having a bridge as in this, you know, a safe, reliable crossing can be maybe more, you know, more satisfied with a newer bridge. So therefore, it becomes a question nationally is what do you do with the older population of bridges if they're not ideal for vehicles? And there have been some, some successes with taking older structures and relocating them to rail trails. In some towns, um, they actually will build a new bridge kind of out of town and leave the old main street and convert the old bridge into a pedestrian bridge. And some towns that have done that see have, are just wildly successful in how that old bridge, just think about like, say, the hot metal bridge in Pittsburgh, which is a wonderful you know, pedestrian bridge today. But think about if that bridge is in the center, this is the centerpiece bridge of a small town, that that bridge can become a really incredible asset to the town. But it's hard to see it that way, right? It's hard to see that, you know, you know, most people in a small, you know, most people in a smaller city or a town want that can that functional crossing there and don't really think about, you know, other opportunities. So especially if you consider how like the mindset of mobility has kind of changed over the past 10, 20 years of going, you know, vehicles are all that matter to all modes matter, right? To go from being um, nobody wants to be in a small town, we want we want the suburban development next to the interstate, how that has kind of evolved to, well, now there is a place for a walkable main street and people do want to live in a that, you know, you might want to, you know, people are moving back to, say, the main street communities and how, say, that bridge that only carried cars before might be a perfect complement now as a pedestrian bridge and a cyclist, you know, biking bridge, where then there's the replacement bridge elsewhere. But again, because of how purpose built bridges are, the times that it makes sense to take the, say, the older bridge and repurpose it as a community asset where somebody wants to own it and maintain it without its intended use can be a very hard sell. So while there are some wonderful examples that you can think about, you know, 90, you know, 90% of the time, a historic bridge is considered obsolete and is, you know, replaced with a structure that best meets the purpose and needs of the situation. So. We'll see if we get to a point where the, the dwindling few become, have, are elevated and, um, and those, the successful case studies of, you know, say, re relocation and repurposing work. But for the most part, you know, usually that answer is no. So therefore, that interest level of taking an old you know, road somewhere and finding this cool old bridge and driving across it is you know, largely lost to history today. Seems like we're kind of lucky in this area. I remember on the tour you had mentioned the Arts Commission, and it seems like they have almost an ironclad grip on what's allowed to be built. And that probably has a big impact as to why we're, even with our newer bridges, they're pretty nice comparatively yeah, to other and places. Again, I mean, yeah, and I mean, the power of the Art Commission today isn't what it was back in what others have called the golden age of um, you know, Pittsburgh Bridge Engineering. Um, I don't know, I like to call that period like the reflective of the distinct Pittsburgh style of publicly designed and um, county funded bridges. Um, but 
certainly the reason that the bridges in Pittsburgh are so nice is that, you know, from 1915 to World War II, even beyond World War II, um, if the Art Commission did not approve a design of a bridge, the engineers had to go back and redesign the bridge. And that's why so many bridges in Pittsburgh look as nice as they do, because that was the only way to get approval to build that bridge. And um, so, so yes. Yeah, so, and then today, um, you know, as you know, livable cities are becoming, you know, such an important, you know, you know, thing nationally, right. That bridges being built today are at least acknowledging that, well, if you're going to build a new structure, you at least want to do something for multimodal use. You might want to, instead of just having bare concrete, stamp the concrete with a stone pattern, or instead of having the simplest, cheapest railing possible, maybe have an older looking railing. So you get cases where the mod modern bridges today, even if structurally might not be interesting, they're still at least a lot nicer um, for everybody than say a bridge built 20 years ago. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm thinking of like the Fern Hollow Bridge. They came in after the design was there and they said, wait, we need to you know, spruce this up a little bit. Exactly, where that's, you know, being, being a bridge that was built in, with incredible speed, structurally, you know, you're not going to be able to do much, but everything else that could be done to make the bridge nice, you know, has been done. Compare that with, say, the Veterans Memorial Bridge over the Allegheny, built in the 80s, where it was built as an economical bridge with no ornamentation whatsoever. So things at least are trending into, um, so you know, to a point to at least put amenities and styling on a bridge that, you know, the public can enjoy, even if, um, you know, depending on, um, you know, the situation, of course, if it's a rural bridge in the middle of nowhere, then it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah. But if a bridge that's, you know, it has pedestrian walkway or used by people, it's, at least there's an attempt now to, you know, acknowledge that multimodalness of this, the structure. So how did you get involved in Doors Open? So. Um, I remember back when um, Doors Open was having its very first downtown event, and it's like, and it seemed so exciting to be able to go downtown and um, check out the interior spaces of buildings that you know I had seen my whole life, right? And you know I've always been interested in architecture as well, so it was so I was really excited to do that, and I was just became a regular attendee at Doors Open events. And then um, during the pandemic, um, the director was looking for somebody to do their virtual storytelling series and to do a virtual storytelling of Pittsburgh Bridges. And you know, you know, reached out to me. I was like, sure, I'll give a presentation for Doors Open. So I did that. And then um, in talking with uh, Bonnie, the director, one thing that you know, like other cities like say Chicago have are the architectural tours that talk about their buildings and bridges. And while the Gateway Clipper itself provides an excellent tour of Pittsburgh, it's not really to the level, it's more of just a general tourism level and not like the type of tour that somebody's going to go in to learn about very specific um, things. So while Doors Open is certainly very family friendly, it's also not necessarily a tour for just a general audience. It's more of a tour for an audience that is very interested in something like buildings or bridges or history. So 
in um, working with, so therefore in working with Doors Open, we decided, well, let's try, you know, kind of replicating the successes of Chicago by doing um, a buildings and bridges tour. And due to, you know, strong interest locally, you know, we've been expanding on that concept and offering, trying to offer, you know, the greatest variety of tours that we can within, uh, you know, a typical 90 minutes sailing time. Yeah, I feel like the Gateway Clipper tour is for people coming into town who don't know anything about Pittsburgh, and they can learn a, a good bit. That that's that's great when you're 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 coming in from the outside. But the tour you do is more geared towards people like me who know a lot, and we're able to expand on our knowledge, which is really, I think, a, a great asset. Absolutely, it's almost like you know, if you've never been here before go on the Gateway Clipper tour, but now that you've done that a few times and you know you know what it's like and you've already seen that, come on doors, the you know, the doors open to learn, you know, learn the other, you know, learn learn more about what what's out, you know, what's out there. And uh certainly since as you as you know, we talked the whole 90 minutes and then we just try to squeeze as much in as possible. Mm-hmm. Um in some ways, it's kind of can be a hard choice between just sitting back, relaxing and enjoying the scenery versus really intently trying to, uh, you know, discover some secrets about, you know, a, a building or a bridge that you might have taken for granted. So um, but that's kind of in some ways, it's kind of the intent is that, you know, you've already, you know, you've already seen it, but now learn really learn about it. What does it mean to you? to have the opportunity to share your knowledge to other people because you're doing it through Instagram, but this is on a different level where you're able to, to point it out and, and talk to people face to face and share your knowledge. Absolutely. And I think that from, I like to say a higher perspective that, you know, everything looks, you know, you, you take things for granted or everything looks the same until you learn enough to realize that it's all different, right? Things aren't necessarily special until you get a certain level of, you know, until something can be really explained well. And that's what's so exciting um, to be able to do that is once, you know, I learned more about rather than just say taking pictures of Pittsburgh bridges, but learning that, well, this bridge looks like, say like, say for example, the Liberty Bridge. The Liberty Bridge looks like an arch bridge, but it's a cantilever bridge. And those two spans that are over the river, they look the same, but structurally have very, very, very different functions, right? Or learning that, well, the Bruno's Island Bridge over the Ohio, that the two different spans over each channel of the island, they were actually all built on the one side and the other side was moved. Hmm. I mean, stuff like that, that like when I learn about this stuff, I get really excited about it. So it's very, so that's what I really appreciate is being able to find what is so cool and so exciting to try to be able to share that with other people and say, look at this, look at what was done. This is great. So that's, you know, that's probably the best part. Are there any challenges because you know so much and you've done so much studying on bridges? Are there any challenges to try to I hate to say this, but almost dumb it down for people who don't have that kind of background. Well, and to clarify with that, the challenge isn't necessarily to dumb it down. The challenge is that the um, you know you're you're limited in what you can see, right? So if I'm giving a presentation, I can have detailed slides to really show the audience what's happening. But looking at a bridge from a riverboat, 
it's really hard to tell that, you know, that to tell that complete story. It's hard to say, here's how a bridge works with arrows pointing to what the forces are doing. So therefore, at least, you know, we provide these supplemental photos that people can look through, whether they're on the tour or on their own time after the tour, to try to at least tell that story or show us how something was built or show the bridge that was there before. So that's kind of the, the you know, you know that you're talking to an engineer when they stop what they're doing and start drawing something. And that is the challenge to me is that I can't stop <laughs> what I'm doing and draw something. But, and the other interesting thing about giving a riverboat tour compared to any other type of, um, say, presentation is what you can control versus what you can't, right? Because if you're giving a presentation, you have a distinct, you know, an allotted time and you do what you can in that allotted time. But in the, uh, giving a riverboat tour, you can't control how fast the boat is going. You can't control how much time you can talk about any one bridge. And you, as far as both buildings and bridges, they're all clustered together. So what do you do in a downtown where you're going past a bridge every minute versus when you're a little farther away from downtown and you might have five minutes or even 10 minutes? How do you make all of that work and give, you know, and spread out that density into something that, um, you know, that makes sense? So that's kind of the really unique challenge about doing a boat tour is what do you say versus what you don't? And I resolve that, or I try to resolve that by thinking the most important thing to talk about is what can make what the audience can see. So if I can add any additional details, great. But otherwise, I'd much rather point out something or give a story or detailing about what the audience can see. And and then some of the other details or stories might not get said because there's just not the ability to do so. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you hope people walk away with when they exit the boat mm -hmm. after the tour? Well, I try to end all of the tours talking about the intentionality of Pittsburgh Bridge design. Almost that, you know, I haven't read this in any book anywhere, but I think this should be considered the you know, the Pittsburgh style of bridges, because our collection of bridges are very distinct because of that intentionality of our style, meaning that while, say, bridge design principles have been taken from all over the world, a lot of the bridges in Pittsburgh were designed, some were designed by you know, people who grew up here, and some people were designed from by people who from other countries that came to Pittsburgh to work. But what has what the kind of the common theme is that because the art commission viewed the bridges structure itself, the bridges structure as part of the bridges artistic merit, our engineers, no matter where they came from, had to figure out how to design a bridge that was structurally beautiful. And as a result, the design of bridges that we have in the city are not the same designs that they would be otherwise. Um, as soon as you leave, you pass the city limits, the design of bridges change. And you can see that on all three rivers where bridges like the New Kensington Bridge, the McKeesport Bridge, the Ambridge Aliquippa Bridge, they were built at the same time as all of the bridges in the city. And they look completely different. And that, if you think about that locally, 
you can also think about that nationally. So therefore, we had this very unique, distinct style that was limited to the city, it's, you know, at least, at least initially limited to the city itself for making structural art. And that's what we don't necessarily realize. And that's what I want the audience to understand is how much our bridges are structural art. Do you think people realize, or do you think people are aware of Pittsburgh's bridge building history? We've had so many industries, and I feel like so much gets overshadowed by the steel industry. I wonder if people, people know we have all these bridges. Do people realize that we make so many, or we have made so many bridges? Yeah, and that's something where, you know, if you're looking at bridges, because, you, know, you know, we had several different bridge building companies here. American Bridge was certainly the biggest, but they weren't the only ones. Like when you go to San Francisco, they say that you know, you know that the Golden Gate Bridge was not done by American Bridge. It was done by another Pittsburgh company, McClintic Marshall, but it wasn't done by American Bridge. And that's the thing. So yes, yeah, so that's certainly in terms of bridge building that you know we you know exported it all over the country. And, you know, and American Bridge still builds some of the world's biggest bridges today, and they're still based locally. So it's certainly something that, you know, we should be very proud of. And yes, because the, a collection of bridges is generally not considered a number one tourist attraction in most cities. You get a few addition, you know, a few individual bridges, mainly the Golden Gate Bridge, the um, Brooklyn Bridge, and then a few others in other cities. Otherwise. Um, you know, people aren't, you know, bridges just add to tourism elsewhere, right? So, um, so as a result, you know, that thought of tying everything to Pittsburgh, well, is probably, you know, not necessarily the case nationally. So you're right. So, you know, most people are looking at bridges and are not thinking about the Pittsburgh connection. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite bridge in Pittsburgh? So just with anything, I mean, I appreciate all of the bridges for what they are. So it's really hard to say, choose a favorite. Um, I'll say that, you know, I definitely, um, you know, how can you not love the Smithfield Street Bridge, right? Um, these, so that's just such an, you know, an ex incredible example of a historic bridge. Um, how can you, um, you know, the, the um, McCullough, the 16th Street David McCullough Bridge, is just you know was the first arch bridge built in pittsburgh and it was headed by I mean, due to the art commission and the project was headed by an architecture architectural firm so therefore that bridge is such a beautiful ornate bridge that really set the tone for beautiful bridges that that one certainly has to be up there but then i also really really love the mckees rocks bridge because you know they you know the architects and engineers who worked on that bridge really considered driving across the bridge as contributing to its artistic merit. So if you drive across any bridge that has somewhat similar of a design, you just won't have the visual open lines between the inner and outer arches that you do with the McKees Rocks Bridge. Hmm. And so therefore, how can you, it's just as a bridge to be impressed and enjoy driving across. I don't know if there's anything better than the McKees Rocks Bridge. So I'll give all three of those uh, my top pick. Yeah, and I think of the 16th Street Bridge, those globes at the mm -hmm. top. 
I just imagine back in the day, though, shining because, you know, everything is oxized over. I, mm-hmm. I just feel like back then, well, maybe it wouldn't be as impressive as I'm thinking because the city was so clouded <laughs> with with uh, smog. But I think that would be really neat to see back in the day. Absolutely. And also, when you say that, like, um, because um, of Alco- the Alcoa company here, the standard color for bridges before they were, you know, were gold standard color was you know alcoa aluminum paint so just about all those bridges were shiny aluminum paint with green rallings so so when you look and that and what's funny about that too is when you look at the older photographs of the bridges like the old color photos because aluminum you know silver aluminum is a color that isn't really you know it's standing out itself it can be based on the lighting condition right like golden hour of the sun is going to make it look gold, right? Or if it's smoggy or whatever, I mean, or if the picture's faded in whatever color, it makes it really hard to even tell what color the bridges were. I mean, just think about it that, you know, you've, how many have, postcards have you seen of the city of Pittsburgh that were in color? How many times have you noticed what color the bridges were when they weren't gold? Mm-hmm. That probably never, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good even point. If, and after, I'm sure after we talk, You'll pull up a find an old postcard of the 16th Street Bridge. You'll look at it and you'll be saying, "Well, what color was it?" That's interesting. Yeah, and that's the the funny thing about. So yeah, they were shiny, yes, and they were they were aluminum and paint. I mean, the 16th, sorry, the Smithfield Street Bridge was the last bridge to have the aluminum paint. So, so when you look at the pictures up until the you know the mid 90s of the Smithfield Street Bridge, you can see that. But again, you know that's why. Kind of like that, the shimmer of all the other bridges are kind of lost to, uh, you know, lost to history. Uh, You've been all over the United States looking at bridges in several places over the world. I am wondering, what are some of the more unique places and unique bridges that you've seen? Mm -hmm. So I, I can't say I've seen all of the most famous bridges in the world. But I've definitely seen most of the uh, you know really really famous bridges in the world, and certainly working on you know con- you know consistently working on that. Some of the ones that are the most exciting are ones that might have inspired bridges in Pittsburgh, because a lot of the bridges in Pittsburgh were actually they were inspired by bridges in Europe at the time. So, um, for example, in um, at the start of Cornwall in the UK, um, the Saltash Bridge was the model for the Smithfield Street Bridge. And it's this giant, giant railroad bridge, and it's so much more massive than the Smithfield Street Bridge. So, you know, that's really exciting. Or the McKees Rocks Bridge, the um, model for the McKees Rocks Bridge was the Hellgate Bridge in New York City. But then the Sydney Harbor Bridge was built pretty much at the same time as the McKees Rocks Bridge and also use the Hellgate Bridge as kind of that design inspiration. So that so it's just so exciting to, you know, because a few years ago I did the bridge walk on the Sydney Harbor Bridge. And, you know, it's just you think that the McKees Rocks Bridge is massive, but then you go on the uh, you're walking up the arch of the uh, Sydney Harbor Bridge and it just, you know, you realize that's actually two and a half times that arch is two and a half times the uh, um, the length of, of the uh, McKees Rocks Bridge, but for it, even in Paris, like the, the uh, you mentioned the armillary spheres on the 16th Street Bridge. Well, that's a fountain in, like, in, in Paris. 
I heard about that. Yeah. So it's really, so I just, so that's one of the things that is just, you know, really, really exciting is to find those Pittsburgh connections. But another thing is that um, when I was little, you know, we had bridge books and it was always so it was exciting as a little kid to flip through those bridge books, bridges of the world. So as much as possible, I'm trying to visit some of those bridges because that I you know, grew up seeing in books. And once I realized, you know, can I actually go see them? Um, you know, that's that, that makes it you know, really exciting and really rewarding. So I appreciate that. And then to answer your question about some of the, the more, um, you know, say remote bridges, believe it or not, some of the most remote bridges I've seen are in West Virginia, where you're literally driving on two tracks, you're driving through streams, you're driving on the side of cliffs, like the amount of effort to get to some of the old bridges in West Virginia um, are, is just, I mean, that's a trip in itself. So that can be, you know, very, very exciting. It can be a lot easier to drive on the left side of the road in say England to go see a heritage bridge than it is to uh, tackle some of the mountain roads in West Virginia, but it's, but it's always very rewarding and always, you know, just such a beautiful unspoiled area. So it's also kind of hilarious that the harder it is to find a bridge and, you know, to get to a bridge in West Virginia, the more likely it is that other people are there too, enjoying it or enjoying the area. Can't tell Sometimes you those mountain roads are, are so worth it. We were in Colorado and we went like, it was like over an hour and it was just nothing except this road kind of dangling along the cliff. And uh, as an aside, we got struck by lightning there when we were standing there looking out at a, at a view, but yeah, it's a, you get some incredible views on those, those roads. Absolutely. But you know, one, one bridge I'll just say that was, you know, when you're talking about remoteness, which was just absolutely amazing just to think about those. I went across a bridge in Peru. All right. And just thinking that going across this bridge, it was a yellow or a yellow orange uh, truss bridge. And again, we're talking about Peru, that the water going under that bridge in Peru would not go under another bridge until the Atlantic Ocean, because that river fed into the Amazon, you know, to another river, which fed into the Amazon. And there are no bridges over the full Amazon River. So even though you're all the way on the west side of the continent, that's the last bridge for this bit of water to go all the way to the east. That's got to be so cool. To, uh, I mean, that's such a great reason to go in, in travel, mm-hmm. to, to you know, have that destination. I know a lot of times I'm very destination-minded. Even when it comes to just exercising, I'll pick a coffee shop to go to and walk 15 miles to get there because if I don't have that destination, I can't force my, my mind, can't force my body to to do it. So I think that's really a, a cool way to get yourself in motion to see different cultures as well. Absolutely. And I mean, it's just so what, what's and what's really just, you know, become really fascinating is now that you know, we're in the social media era. And again, I've been doing this since a little kid, you know, I've been a little kid, been doing this before, you know, before smartphones, before Google Maps, before um, social media. Um, it's just interesting that now that somebody posts a picture on social media and this whatever spot becomes the place to go, right? Or and maybe a town is now you know touristy. It was never before, right? That it's almost like today there's this like search for authentic places, but really looking at bridges is going to authentic places, right? Because most bridges are not touristy, 
right? You know, in fact, depending on where they are, um, you might feel very unwelcome looking at a bridge mm -hmm. for various reasons. And therefore, you know, you're just driving through all, you know, all kinds of places and seeing all kinds of things from some of the wealthiest areas of the country to some of the least affluent areas. And, you know, you can just like, I remember I was looking at bridges in, uh, you know, in, you know, in Mississippi, and you could just go going through some of the towns and just seeing people just out enjoying each other's company. And the things that like, you would never say think about, right. And it's just, it's amazing just to be able to see so many different environments. And I mean, and, you know, and you can, and, you know, it's, it's always fun to meet people as well. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a, it's, it's, again, it's just funny, the search for finding trendy, authentic places that aren't overrun with tourists, tourism today, when it's like, well, that's kind of what I do. Yeah, no, that's very cool. I do that when I travel, I always am researching i do a lot of research before i travel anywhere to find out where local people like to eat and what local treasures are that people generally don't know about when they travel and it definitely makes traveling a much richer and fulfilling experience when you're able to do that it does but the say the difference today versus how things say might you know were is that even it's so hard to be surprised today right because you can do all of that research and today you know if you're driving through somewhere and you see say maybe the uh you know the rest the town only has one restaurant right and you look at your phone and you're like oh well this restaurant has a 3.5 um i'm going to keep driving i don't care or you know you might say oh well this restaurant has a 4.8 i'm driving to this little town just to go to this restaurant well, you already have an expectation. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially like in the 90s, that was one of the and into the 2000s before all of this, um, you know, you know, before, say, things have changed, you know, the more modern social media is one of the most exciting things to just find an interesting, you know, restaurant in a small town and go there and, you know, talk to people and just, you know, have, you know, sometimes you know sometimes it might not might be a horrible experience but sometimes you might just be you know it might be the best restaurant ever and those are kind of like the things that you do that that are really exciting you know that end up being a very positive experience that you don't expect are often like the greatest experiences that you have like when you're just like amazed that like I, you know in fact it used to be so exciting when i was a little kid and maybe that's what really got me into looking at bridges is or just follow the various rivers no idea what the bridge would look like some days you'd go and especially the older i got the smaller the rivers that were still unknown right um and you'd have no idea like was this going to be a nice bridge or this going to be a boring bridge and it would be so exciting if you found something that you didn't know existed or even like different bridges have different configurations and if you'd find a configuration that you've never seen before that would just like make the whole day now the chance of finding something that you haven't seen a picture of and don't know about and it's still there i'm not saying it doesn't happen but it is very 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 rare true i think one way to still get that experience is to walk i i walk a lot mm -hmm. when i travel and i usually don't rent a car if i'm if i'm in a city traveling into into a city and i just think 
when I went to San Francisco the first time and I'm walking through downtown and I see all these trees on this building that crosses the the main road there. And I start Googling. I'm like, what is that? And it's a park, but it was called Salesforce Park. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a private park for people who work for Salesforce. And as I look, it's a park that's public. They just bought the naming rights. So I went up and and that was an experience uh, kind of like what you're talking about where I had no idea this thing existed, but because I walk everywhere and my uh, I, I'll put a destination in just so that way I know I'm not walking through uh, you know, a neighborhood with nothing going on, but my eyes are always darting everywhere and I'm like that dog in up where you're just like distracted by everything and I'll be running to this park, running to that plaza and just looking at everything. Mm-hmm. So I kind of understand. I'm not so much that way with driving, but when I go to a city, uh, I will put down destinations, but I also keep an open mind to just explore and, and run into things. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny that you were talking about San Francisco because um, after I graduated, you know, finished undergrad, three of my friends all went out to the Bay Area for grad school. So, you know, the first time that I really did a trip kind of by myself, you know, I just, you know, right out, you know, just out of college, um, you know, flew out there and then just met up with each one. And you know, it was just, you know, since most of them, since they were in grad students, they didn't have cars either, right? It's like, well, either we'll go into the city or we'll do this. And it was just taking transit and walking. And obviously, San Francisco has, uh, you know, today is, you know, it's a little different back, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, or whatever. And it was just so amazing to just kind of walk over. And again, and also, this is, you know, before, you know, Facebook was still limited to college students and um, before Instagram. So to just kind of find these incredible spaces and scenic vistas and cool coffee shops and just kind of, you know, just explore the city on foot was, I think, the first day that I was there, walked at least 10 miles, if not more. And it was just, you know, just amazing to me that, you know, that ability to just kind of walk around and explore because prior to that, really travel was focused on, you know, let's find bridges, let's find bridges, let's find bridges, let's find bridges. So not that, you know, obviously I saw the bridges while I was out there, but also to kind of say, well, we're looking at bridges, but seeing everything else that's out there. So that's another reason why. So sometimes when I travel, they will be dedicated trips where I'm just looking at bridges for days or even a week. But other times it's just how to, and more and more now it's just how to mix everything together stop at bridges in between destinations or go to see a certain bridge but stop at the various you know places that look interesting along the way it's funny you say that because san francisco was the first trip i went by myself and didn't know anyone there and it was also the first trip i went on without a car and i walked 15 miles a day for five days so it's just such a it such an interesting parallel that we kind of had a similar experience absolutely and i feel like now that i mean obviously in san francisco from one you know i I was just i was last there in in 2020 right before the pandemic um but um i you know i understand that while there are some areas that are still very nice to walk around the it's not what it was before you know it's like that they, you know the city certainly has its challenges in certain areas today, but you know, but in some ways, 
Pittsburgh is just a, you know, a, a San Francisco so similar to San Francisco, except that obviously it's not as wealthy of a city. So it's not as pristine. Mm-hmm. It's still just like there's no really there's no other city in the East that can, you could just kind of find. You know, it, it's almost like Pittsburgh is less accessible, but even more rewarding in some of their you know, exciting like coffee shops and restaurants and that you can find or you know, streets that turn, yeah, sort sure, you know, when you find the streets here that turn into stairs, they might not have these amazing gardens, but they're still really amazing, you know, really exciting and interesting in their own right. Get so. great, incredible views from them as well. I love walking the steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're a few sidewalks away. Get a few more sidewalks in there and, and we'll be set. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree. It's in great views. I lo- like I said, I love the steps. I live in Beachview, so a lot of our sidewalks become steps, and right. there's just tons of steps around here. Uh, I'm going to leave you with one final question. What is your favorite Doors Open experience? What has been your favorite Doors Open experience? So, that, so that, that's a great question. And I mean, I still just really, you know, you know, I I love views of Pittsburgh from high places, so I always gravitate towards the various. Um, you know, anytime I have the opportunity with door, you know the doors open, specialty tours or the downtown neighborhood events. The next downtown neighborhood event will be in the spring. Um, I love any time that I can get in a skyscraper, go up to like when we used to be able when like say the executive level was. Uh, available to tour on the, the you know the bny mellon building that was super exciting or like the co-working space and ppg i mean and and granted i mean for several years i worked you know in a downtown skyscraper so but i never really even took that for granted but just seeing like the various views of the city from various high places i'll leave you with this remark that kind of doors open touches on is i was reading a book about urban exploring years ago and the author noted that I, I guess I forget if this was this is in I think it was New York. It was either New York or Chicago. He said that there used to be 34 observation decks in the city, because especially back in the teens and the 20s and the 30s, buildings were generally built with observation decks because skyscrapers were new and exciting. And he's like, why is it that people who lived 100 years ago could get these views? And today, the buildings are still here, but I can't. And that's how that author got into urban exploring, because he wanted to go get on all of the closed observation decks. And Pittsburgh certainly has buildings that have closed observation decks. So because of that, it's just so exciting to me to be able to go and see some of these views and see some of these behind the scene things, then, you know, that doors open can provide that experience. And certainly the intent of doing the riverboat tours is also to try to unlock these other views from the bridges and really kind of to point out these hidden details as much as possible that um, might have been exciting back then and has been, you know, lost to uh, the collective memory.